So last week, we continued our lessons from chapter 3 of, our, of the book we're covering now in Sunday School, Principles of Conduct, and chapter 3 is on marriage and procreation. And in that lesson last week, we finished our brief discussion of pornography, and the main thing I want to stress from that is that we talked about the fact that the way to overcome that sin is to displace it with new and better affections rather than to seek to just say no to ourselves. We have to say no to ourselves, but we need to displace that with, with better affections. We need to not just sweep the house clean and have seven demons worse than, worse than were there before come back, but we need rather to fill the house with good thoughts. Then we began to look at the satisfaction of what we've called the sex impulse within marriage. And we saw that the Bible's <coughs> main assertion from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 5, is that we are to serve each other in this area of our marriage, just as we seek to serve one another in many other relational areas. And we were considering the fact that we can get the motives of service to another and service to self easily and in some respects understandably confused. And I illustrated that with my uh, Peddler's Mall analogy where I said that I've, I've come to enjoy shopping at Peddler's Malls. Some of you enjoy it anyway, and that's okay. It's fine. It was just me. I did not enjoy that initially. And after being married to my wife and finding her, her love for doing that, I've actually developed a love for it myself. And, and uh, I couldn't tell, I can't tell, whether my love for that has grown because of love for Donna or whether it's grown because I actually delight in the activity myself. I, I can't say that for certain. I'm not going to take time here for any additional illustration of that point. I was planning on that, but then I decided in preparing this lesson that I needed to keep moving. So what I want to say is that ideally, the area of marital sexual relations is kind of like the peddler's model illustration. In the vast majority of marriages, one spouse has a stronger sex drive than the other. And this is why this, that being the area of sex in marriage, is one of the two most predominant areas of conflict in marriages, the other being finances. Um, so why is that? And I, I think often is because each spouse in this area is thinking primarily about what they want. Very naturally, they're thinking about what they want rather than about serving their spouse. Uh, either by serving them by loving restraint of their stronger desire or by loving embrace of their desire, of their spouse's desire in reality. And as they learn to serve one another in this area, often 
the lower desire spouse finds that they enjoy showing affection to their spouse more often because it makes them happy. It makes their spouse happy. And that's in keeping with uh, 1 Corinthians 7 as it goes on, where Paul is talking about married versus single people and that the married spouse, the married husband or the married wife, has to occupy their thinking at least partly, if not predominantly, with how to please their spouse. That's an appropriate and God-honoring thing to do. And the higher desire spouse finds that, they, that there's great enjoyment for them in restraining themselves to serve their lower desire spouse because it makes that spouse happy. So if, if the husband and the wife will focus on pleasing the other rather than pleasing themselves, it changes the whole dynamic of the interaction about this topic within the marriage. And it can be, it can still be a point of conflict in the sense that the spouses disagree about how often or what they want to do in this area, but it doesn't become a point of uh, divisive conflict. It becomes a point of, I'm going to call it uh, inclusive or bonding conflict, where the, they work together to develop a solution that works for both of them. And they're both thinking about the other primarily in their working through that, rather than thinking of themselves. As they learn to serve, uh, no. <clears throat> so what is the root of their motivation when they are uh, thinking rightly about this topic, about serving their spouse in this area? Is it desire to serve and make their spouse happy? Or is it a quote-unquote selfish desire based on the enjoyment they get from serving their spouse in that way? And the answer to that question is yes, it is. It's both. And you really don't need to try to feather out which one it is primarily. We, we may never fully understand the root of this in ourselves. I may never fully understand whether I really enjoy shopping at peddler's malls or whether I enjoy seeing my wife enjoy it so much. I may not understand that, but does it matter? It reminds me of the concept of uh, Christian hedonism that John Piper makes, made popular. And that is, once we become Christians, the Holy Spirit starts to change our want-tos, starts to change our motivations, what we want to do in life. And increasingly, what we want to do is in line with what God wants us to do, because God is living in our hearts as Christians. And we, we progressively begin to hear his voice and want to obey him. So when we obey him, are we doing it for him? because he's worthy, or for ourselves, because that's what we want to do? The answer, again, is yes. That's right. We are. We're doing it for him, and we're doing it for ourselves, because the Holy Spirit works in a Christian to line their desires up with his desires. So serving Christ becomes progressively one and the same with serving ourselves. 
Paul is not calling Christian husbands and wives to a life of grudging bondage to each other's desires. He's calling them to be Christian hedonists. He's calling them to line their desires up with his desires for them, and they will find nothing but great delight in doing exactly what their Lord wants them to do. Because that's what a hedonist does. He serves himself. And what a Christian hedonist does, he serves God and serves himself, incidentally. They're lined up. He is calling them, and he's enabling them, that is God, is calling the Christian and enabling the Christian to progressively learn to take delight in serving one another. So they will have a mind increasingly conformed to the mind of their Savior. And that reminded me of Philippians 2, 3, and 4, which, which it, it, uh, it relates very well to this topic as well as a broad array of topics, obviously. But I'll just remind you, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, not, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That is the mind of Christ. That is the mind we're being conformed to. As we see in verse 5, following on from verses 2 and 3 in Philippians, or 3 and 4 in Philippians 2, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind is Christ's mind. This is the mind we're being conformed to by our progressive sanctification. This is one of the reasons that I tell couples that I counsel uh, premaritally that getting married will give them abundant opportunities to be sanctified. That is, to be made to look like their Savior. Getting married will show you more of how selfish you are, for sure. But also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will progressively overcome that selfishness. It's not you might, it's you will. The Holy Spirit is living in a Christian's heart. The Holy Spirit will sanctify his children. So now, to, clo to close out this whole topic, of this four, four, fourth lesson now from this chapter, I want to touch on what I see as three of the foundational purposes of sex and marriage. And I get them from the scriptures, so it wasn't like I had to dream this up on my own. The first is in the title of this chapter, Procreation. And we've already talked about this. God gave us a command to be fruitful and multiply, and sex and marriage is his given means for obeying that command. So we're not going to talk about that anymore. The second purpose for sex and marriage is for what I call companionship or bonding of the, of the couple one to another. As image bearers, all people have been created with a common desire for communion with others. Now, your desire for this may be higher or lower than some others, 
but we were created in the image of God as social beings, as beings that did not live in isolation. As our confession says in chapter 2, paragraph 3, in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. And the relationship of those three persons to one another, those three persons being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the relationship of them to one another is perfect communion. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He didn't create us to be solitary, but in his image, just like God, he created us to seek the kind of perfect communion that he has within the Godhead. And then immediately after that, he ordained marriage to be a one-flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. And then we have that last verse in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It reads, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, in view of the image-bearing relationship of this verse and this passage of Scripture, this nakedness is much more than, and probably, probably, uh, it is predominantly more than simply physical. Physical speaks very clearly to us because we're physical beings. We understand that. This is communicating to us a pre-fall relationship between two people, a husband and a wife, that is what we would call fully vulnerable and without shame or embarrassment. This is a this is a relationship in its ideal state that none of us can actually perfectly picture or do. Because all of us, every single one of us, has areas that we hide from even our spouses. And that hiding is what Adam and Eve did when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They hid. And that was the beginning of it. But this is what people are seeking, whether they realize it or not. They're seeking to get back to this ideal state. Human beings are made in God's image, and God's image is a com communion-based image. It's perfect communion with another. And marriage is a God-given means by which many of us would seek to achieve this desired physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy with another. And of course, sin makes it impossible to achieve this in its ideal state, but it is nonetheless what we are seeking, all of us. Now, I'm going to have a quick aside here because I don't want, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that this can only be achieved in marriage. That's not true. Could two people have this kind of relationship without being married to one another? Could they have this kind of um, quote-unquote naked relationship with no shame or embarrassment between them? 
The answer is yes, they can. Because you can point to Jesus, who lived on this earth as a man and lived a life of perfect fulfillment, and yet he wasn't married. So you have to conclude that he lived his life and was able to have this kind of relationship with his closer friends. At least for his sake, he could. Now, none of his disciples were perfectly naked with him, but he was able to be, have communion with his disciples. So singles, you are not precluded from seeking to live vulnerably with some others and thus moving toward this ideal of relational intimacy, which we are all seeking in this life, whether we realize it or not. Now I'm going to put that aside and come back to married couples. What distinguishes between the relationship with our spouse and with other close friends and companions? Now, I could think of several things. I'm going to highlight two of them. One is living under one roof. Living under one roof with someone um, develops with them naturally a more intimate relationship than not living with them. They see our sins, they see our graces, our spiritual life or our lack of spiritual life, much better than others do, where we can put on our mask when we leave our house. If we're living under the same roof with somebody, a roommate, a housemate, they see us much better than the world sees us, the world outside the door of the house. This, of course, can be shared with the opposite sex. That's why married couples most often, and, and I would recommend it, live under one roof. But it can also be shared with uh, housemates, roommates, people of the same gender who you are living with. Uh, when I was in college, I lived with a very good friend of mine for, for a quarter, for, for three months. And we were still very good friends after that, but he moved out. And we, we remained good friends, but we weren't as good of friends when we were living together under the same roof. Because we saw things in each other. I say this now, we didn't say it then. But we saw things that bothered us. So that living under one roof does expose a certain amount of you to another that you don't get unless you're living under one roof. And marriage provides that. But the second, the second way marriage is different, which is unique, is that we have a physical, sexual relationship with one another as spouses. And this is something that is only shared with our spouse. I'll, I'll stop and say, should only be shared with our spouse. But that's just acknowledging that sin exists in our world. In the biblical, ideal sense here, this is only shared with our spouse. Others can live with us and know us quite well, but only our spouse enters into a one-flesh relationship with us. And this, enables, this establishes the unique opportunity for a husband and wife to be bound together. God gave this gift of sex at least partly for the purpose of bonding spouses to one another in a way that we are not bound to anyone else. And certainly the physical nakedness involved in a sexual relationship serves to bond spouses to each other. And that is not to mention the emotional and spiritual nakedness 
that is ideally there as well. For many, for many of us, this kind of vulnerability requires a great deal of trust in our spouse. A level of trust that is not required in any others of our relationships. Just the development and maintenance of that trust can bond spouses to each other. But further, do you know that there are chemicals released in our brains? We are created physical beings with these chemicals that are released, that work, they're, they're released during sexual relations. And they're released with the express result of bonding us to our spouse. And they're somewhat differently released in men versus women, but they are released in both of them. And both experience strong inclinations to bond more closely during and immediately following sexual relations. And the levels of those chemicals decline with time after peaking. And only by having an ongoing sexual relationship with our spouse will we maintain this close bonding that God has created us to have. This helps explain why premarital or extramarital sexual relationships are so damaging to marriages. But we're going to have to cover that. That's a completely separate topic. But these, these kinds of extramarital relationships, they often divorce the physical from the emotional, spiritual nature of sex, and that tears it apart. And it often tears marriages apart. Even Jesus acknowledges that in strengthening the law of adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's a quick summary of the purpose of sex, of increasing our bonding with our spouse. It is designed, it is given to us that we would be able to seek and to have a more and more intimate, uncovered relationship, a vulnerable relationship with another, be- another human being that would help us to satisfy the desire that God put in us as his image bearers. But there's a third purpose of sex that I want to talk about here. And that's the purpose. Well, I'll start with God created our bodies and he ordained marriage and he called both of them good, our bodies and marriage. And God gave the gift of sex to husbands and wives as a means to obey his command to be fruitful to bond them together, as we've just discussed. And the third reason is, he gave us this gift to enjoy. That's why you give gifts, so the receiver can enjoy them. Now, I didn't hear it. I actually have this statement in my notes. Did I hear a gasp when I said that? Did I feel a little stress in myself 
in even bringing that up? Yeah, I did. I don't know if any of you felt any stress whatsoever. I felt some stress in bringing that up. Why? Why do I feel that? Well, it's at least partly because the devil, our culture, and our own flesh have such a corrupted view of sex that many of us can't think of or talk about it with some sense of shame about the topic. That's true. It's taboo, isn't it? We shouldn't, we shouldn't be talking about this. That's what, we have a voice in us that says that. I do anyway. I can't speak for all of you. Even talking about it here over these last four lessons has made some of us squirm a little bit. I've seen some of that. I can't squirm as much because I'm standing up here in front of you. But I'm squirming too. Now, I'm not talking about the sense of shame that righteously arises from sharing too deeply the intimate details of something which is intended to be private between a husband and a wife. And that's it. Two people can discuss this topic in any amount of detail that they are inclined to. But only two. And we shouldn't be talking about those kinds of details here in a public forum. A sense of shame for that kind of thing is appropriate. It's good. But rather, I'm talking about the sense of shame that comes from discreetly but candidly discussing a topic that we have been trained by the culture we live in, by the world we live in, to consider. We've been trained to consider it forbidden because it's dirty or it's fleshly. It can't be spiritual because it's so fleshly. It's a strategy of our adversary to keep us isolated from others in talking about this topic. You know what? The world will talk to us about this topic all day, every day. They'll show us images. They'll speak to us. They'll put up advertising. They'll do it all. They'll talk to us about this topic all the time. Why shouldn't we talk about it in a scripturally centered way in the church. We should. He even keeps us isolated this way in our own homes. Husbands and wives, believe it or not, I could take a show of hands, but I would not even risk that. <laughs> I bet you that the majority of husbands and wives here cannot talk about this topic openly with one another. I hope that some of you are talking about it somewhat openly, and are working on improving that, but I would be willing to bet that there's a fair amount of what I'm talking about here, this world-induced, world culture-induced shame that stops us from talking with our spouse about this topic in a team-oriented versus adversarial kind of way. Now, sex is a fleshly experience. So is eating or listening to beautiful music. It uses our senses. It uses the, the five senses that God has given us to enjoy the world he's put us in, that he created for our enjoyment. 
And sex points us to a much deeper spiritual reality, as we've discussed. It points us to our continual drive towards seeking intimate communion with another to be created, to, to better express the image of God in us. So what do the scriptures say about this topic? Because they do speak to it. And I can't cover all the places it speaks of it. God speaks of this topic fairly generously. But let's talk just about Hebrews 13.4. It's a simple statement. Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable and among all, and the bed undefiled. So let's just discuss that briefly. I'm not going to exposit this whole verse. But marriage is honorable among all. What is honorable communicating? It's communicating that it is especially precious. And just a couple of uses of the word translated honorable help to shed light on this. In 1 Peter 1.19... The precious blood of Christ that redeems us is honorable, same word. In Revelation 21.11, the city of God from heaven has light like a stone, most precious, most honorable, same Greek word. So when the writer uses the word translated honorable in Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable, to describe marriage, He's saying that it's in the same category, it's the same as the spilt blood of Jesus that redeems us and the light of heaven, which is God's dwelling place. Honorable is saying, it, he, he's putting marriage in really good company comparatively. And he means it. It's honorable. Now what does he mean in saying that the bed is undefiled? So before looking briefly at the word translated undefiled, consider that the Greek word translated as the bed in our verse in the New King James is koite. You might recognize that Greek word because it's just transliterated into English as the word coitus, which refers to sexual intercourse. So the verse, Hebrews 13.4, is literally saying that sexual intercourse within marriage is undefiled. Now what does he mean by undefiled? Because it's easy to take that word, which is, I, I think of it as it's kind of negatively stated. It's undefiled. It's not defiled. We could very naturally take that to mean it's permissible. It's acceptable. Which would be, that'd be a statement. But that's not what it's saying. This word's only used three other times in the Bible. But I think the two of them are especially instructive to look at. Hebrews 7.26. Pastor Jim just preached on this. Our high priest, Jesus, is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Okay, 1 Peter 1.4, our inheritance in Christ is incorruptible 
and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So far from being allowed or acceptable, the marriage bed, sexual intercourse in marriage, is the opposite of defiled. Kind of like pure or clean, really, really, really clean is the opposite of dirty. It's the opposite. The opposite of dirty is not necessarily not dirty. That doesn't communicate the same level of purity that saying the, that the opposite of dirty is pure, spotless. The marriage bed, sexual intercourse in marriage, is pure and beautiful in God's sight. It is a thing that God loves to behold. Just like he does Jesus and our inheritance in him. In the same way, because the same word is used. God loves to behold it. It's in light of this reality that we should feel free, that is obedient, to enjoy the good gift that God has given us in sex in marriage. And also, so we should, be feel, we should feel free, we should feel obedient to enjoy it. We should also know in our heads and feel in our hearts that God enjoys the fact that we enjoy this good gift. He does not frown upon it. He doesn't cover his eyes. He doesn't turn away because, oh, my children are doing something fleshly. He revels in it. We can easily understand this idea of, enjoy, of enjoying see, seeing the receiver enjoy a good gift as parents or grandparents, I might say. Right? When we give a gift to a child or to a grandchild, we want for that child or grandchild to enjoy that gift. In fact, it gives us great delight when we see that child enjoying that gift. We have a certain floppy, I think it's a raccoon. It's a blue thing about this big. Of all the things we have, the squishy, soft, fun things we have, this is the thing that Colton really enjoys at our house. And I love watching him enjoy it. And you know what else? I don't tell him he has to enjoy it in this way. And another child might enjoy that same gift in a different way. And it would give me just as much delight. That's an important concept to keep in mind, too. We're talking about principles here. I am not telling anyone how to enjoy this gift. The Bible doesn't, doesn't prescribe for us how to enjoy this gift. I say that in a hesitating way because it does give some prescription. Like it says, it be shared between married couples. So he does say that. 
He does say a few other things that we can't get into. So why do we resist the idea that God gets great delight from seeing us enjoy the good gift of marital sex that he's given to us? Why, why do we squirm at that? Why do we resist that idea? Why do we resist? I know some of you are, are shocked by this section of the teaching. You don't have to admit it. I just know that some of you are. Because it's taken me a while to get through all this. I'm, when I say a while, I mean several years that I've been studying this and pondering it some, meditating on it. And I've come to a point now where I believe it firmly enough and I believe it's scripturally sound enough that I can stand and teach it to you guys. But I know the resistance that your flesh feels. I understand. I'm just telling you, take these things and, and look and see if they're true. Just like we would enjoy good food or delicious scent of baked bread, if you enjoy that, or a beautiful sunset, or a magnificent symphony. These are all sensory gifts. These are all gifts that we can enjoy because God's given us senses to enjoy them. Just like you can enjoy those, sex is a gift to, of God to married couples that it delights Him to see his children enjoy every bit as much as enjoying these other good gifts from his hand. And none of us, I don't think many of us would squirm at the idea of God enjoying seeing us enjoy a good sunset and giving him praise and glory for it. Or enjoying a well-composed symphony, well-played. We would not squirm at that. We wouldn't squirm at the, at the fact that, uh, we've said it before up here many times, I love pizza. We don't, we don't squirm at the idea of really enjoying a good pizza. I know that this thought will take some getting used to for many of us, but it is nonetheless, I, th I think it's clearly demonstrated in Scripture, and we can't take the time to demonstrate it. I think I've done that throughout, but I'll just, I'll add, you know, why would, why would this married, married, uh, use of this gift that God's given us, sex, why would it not be part of all things that God gives us richly to enjoy? That's Bible language from 1 Timothy 6.17. Why would it not be part of all things? It doesn't say he gives us all things except sex, richly to enjoy. It says he gives us all things. I'm going to wade a little bit deeper here, just for a minute. Whatever your preferred interpretation of the Song of Solomon, and broadly I'll say, you either believe that it is an analogy for the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, or it's literal. It's a celebration of this, of this gift shared between a husband and wife. Whatever your interpretation you can't deny two facts. It uses blush-worthy sexual imagery 
and that without apology. There is no shyness in the Song of Solomon about the language it uses. And the illustrations, it clearly puts out there for us to understand. It actually revels in it. I don't know how many of you have read this book regularly. Probably not very many. I read it once a year because I read through the Bible once a year. But I have not made a careful study of this book. I've probably made more of a study of it than some of you, but I've not made a careful study of it. But you, you can't deny those two facts. It, revel, it, it uses blush, blushworthy sexual imagery, and it revels in it. And the second fact is, it's part of God's word. It's part of God's revealed mind to us. And you can't deny that. You can't tear that book out of your Bible. It's there. So let's seek to embrace what God embraces and celebrates. A purpose of sex is for married couples to enjoy this good gift from our loving Father. So, at least three purposes God gave. These three purposes are at least the purposes that God gave. The gift of sex to husbands and wives. They're to procreate, they're to be bound together, and they're to enjoy God's good gift to them. So let's seek to honor God in our marriages, including our development, our development of the sexual relationship within those marriages. And I'm going to stop there. And I think that that's a good place to conclude. So um, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we talk about anything here, but especially when we talk here about this topic, which is so littered with misconceptions, that we can look to your word and we can use your word to give us an understanding of your mind toward us and toward uh, the topic of sex in marriage. And Father, we pray that we would be enabled increasingly, day by day, to embrace the goodness of this and to enjoy uh, the goodness of this for your glory and for your praise. Father, we ask that you would, by these lessons and by discussions that come out of them, uh, grow us in our conformity to Christ as we seek to live on this world, day, on this earth, day by day. Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.